Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is Volume 12, Issue Number 28, which corresponds with the week of June 27, 2022. This week, we are going to be discussing concussion, traumatic brain injuries, starchy vegetables, and heat risk. The free thoughts this week are repeated concussions are often a serious problem that are recognized too late. Trauma repeated over time to the brain leads to neurodegeneration and poor quality endings to a beautiful life, however it was led. The song of the week is Learning to Fly by Pink Floyd. Give it a listen. This week's podcast was a journal club with Andrew Brackens, fourth-year medical student from Campbell University School of Medicine. This week, we discussed the major topic of traumatic brain injury, concussions, and omega-3 fatty acids and their use in the same. Give it a listen. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Audible. Issue number 28. Let's get into it. Concussions otherwise known as TBI or traumatic brain injury. Concussion is an injury that is a trauma to the head where the skull stops rapidly and the inner brain gets rotationally or linearly moved beyond its normal confines leading to microscopic nerve injury and subsequent inflammation. The traumatic process occurs suddenly and can have unconsciousness as a consequence. Whether the patient is unconscious or not for a period of time, a full workup is necessary to understand the gravity of the injury and the subsequent therapies needed for a full recovery. If your child suffers a head injury during a sporting event, have her or him assessed for cognitive delay and neurologic symptoms before returning to play. If your child is determined to have suffered a concussion, expect to have delayed return to play and schoolwork based on symptom resolution. In our clinic, most concussions last one to three weeks before all symptoms are resolved. It is imperative to let the brain rest as needed during the recovery phase. We recommend brain rest to symptom comfort. Old data promoted complete brain rest, and that did not turn out to be useful in controlled study. One should stop serious exercise, vigorous physical activity, difficult schoolwork, excess TV, all video gaming, and other brain overstimulating activities until someone is symptom-free. Mild schoolwork, mild physical activity, and mild stimulating events are fine if there are no symptom increase associated. Strict adherence to the plan is critical. Far too many teenagers and coaches of sport do not follow the prescribed course and have protracted healing issues in those that are affected. Think of the NFL, National Football League. Historically, they had been the poster group for what not to do in brain health, with repeated football players over the many decades playing through traumatic brain injuries, and now we're seeing massive problems with CTE, or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, from these injuries. Concussions can alter a child's personality temporarily, so be aware of this and be patient with them while they heal. As with most disease that we discuss, the antecedent condition of the individual prior to injury has a major influence on outcome and length of time to recovery. 
being systematically inflamed for any reason increases length of recovery time. During an acute injury, the brain goes into hypermetabolic state, burning a lot of glucose fuel for energy to help handle the need of the overactive neurotransmitter pumps. This causes the brain cell and cells to increase glucose utilization, leading to increased mitochondrial burning byproducts called reactive oxygen species, which damage local nerve cells, triggering local inflammation. Then the glucose stores become depleted, leading to a hypometabolic state with low glucose use. This is the crucial and most critical time where another head trauma would be catastrophic. The global inflammation leads to macrophage activation, cellular destruction, and potentially self-antigen presentation, which can lead to autoimmunity in the brain. For a detailed look, I'm going to go to the science right now. If you want to skip ahead, maybe about two minutes worth of stuff to skip because it's going to get a little deep right now. So here we go. Science heavy. Molecular cascade of events after a mild TBI. The initial mechanical injury causes mild membrane disruption in the nerve, axonal damage, and indiscriminate neurotransmitter, specifically glutamate release, and activation of ion channels such as the NMDA receptor. Remember that the axons are the long, lengthy pieces of the nerve that connect the neuron bodies and the terminal ends. Deregulation of sodium, potassium, calcium flux leads to excitotoxicity, a massive influx of calcium and a flux of potassium, and the release of the neurotransmitter glutamate. Calcium influx also exacerbates damage to the axonal structure and causes mitochondrial dysfunction. ATP-dependent sodium-potassium pumps function at the elevated capacity, creating a hypermetabolic state generating oxidative stress that can result in cellular damage. Glucose stores become depleted due to the hypermetabolic state, resulting in a hypometabolic state with low glucose utilization. This hypometabolic state may last for months in severe cases, and during this time, the brain may be particularly vulnerable to repeated injuries. Concurrently, inflammation due to microglial activation occurs soon after the concussive injury, causing damage to cellular structures. Ultimately, the combination of oxidative stress, inflammation, excitotoxicity, mitochondrial dysfunction, and axonal damage results in neuronal apoptosis which is the same thing as saying neuronal cell death. The omega-3 fatty acid docosahexaenoic acid has been shown to address several of the hallmark pathologic features of this injury, such as excitotoxicity, oxidative stress, and inflammation. That piece of science came directly from Baird et al. 2014, which was found in a journal called Advances in Nutrition. The immune system is activated and begins a process of cleaning and repairing the damage. For this part, let us focus on the microglial cells, a type of resident macrophage, which is basically a large cell that devours tissue that it no longer likes or pathogens or anything that the body wants to rid itself of. These macrophages cover every square millimeter of the brain. They are poised to 
eat anything that is foreign or dangerous to protect local brain tissue. These cells make up 80% of the immune cells in the brain telling us of their massive importance. They come in two flavors, M1, which is inflammatory, and M2, which is the opposite, anti-inflammatory. To really understand what is happening during a traumatic brain injury at the immune level, we have to first understand that the brain is going to protect itself at all costs. The cells in the brain have specialized pattern recognition receptors called PAMPs and DAMPs, pathogen-associated molecular patterns and damage-associated molecular patterns, to find pathogens and our own cellular debris in local tissue spaces that have been damaged. These receptors are cranked up and peak seven days after a traumatic brain injury to recognize the damaged cells and trigger local microglial cells to act. There is also a concomitant increase in nuclear factor kappa B, otherwise known as NF kappa B, which promotes inflammation and again peaks at seven days. These actions are also affected by the permeability of the blood-brain barrier and the infiltrating circulating immune cells making this process exceedingly complicated. But this is a critical process for species survival as removal of pathogens and damaged cells from the brain reduces further damage leading to dysfunction globally. Let's take, for example, a teenager who hits his or her head by a baseball in a game causing a brief loss of consciousness. The microscopic cell-based response is that the ronal cell membranes and the axons get stretched and disrupted by the TBI leading to local neurotransmitter excess and cell debris release triggering damps to be recognized by the pattern recognition receptors. The end result is a triggering response that recruits local microglial cells to clean up the damaged tissue and damaged cells. These microglial cells will then recruit inflammasomes to form and fire up, burning the damaged tissue for clearance. There is also a release of cell signaling inflammatory cytokines to recruit other immune cells to the area, including neutrophils. These cells are acting in an inflammatory way on purpose for damage resolution and are more aggressive when recruited from outside the brain. Thus, the more neutrophils and macrophages that show up, the more inflammation there will be, and potentially the more damage. Then the microglial cells should shift from an M1 type to a resolution-based M2 type. And if all goes according to plan, the cells are repaired and normalcy is restored and our brains are back to normal. However, in some individuals, this process is broken and microglial cells stay pro-inflammatory, recruiting further volumes of immune cells that cause more damage and the cycle persists to the detriment of the person's brain. The cause of the why remains the object of much research. If enough tissue is damaged, the debris can be presented to the immune system, leading to autoimmune issues over time, and that is not good. Suffice it to say that our lifestyle choices that are often discussed here appear to be driving some of these issues. In the newsletter, there's a picture that you can see for more details, but in general, sleep, diet, stress, and sedentary behavior are the main drivers of immune dysfunction. Obesity and metabolic syndrome are highly associated with poor outcomes. These lifestyle choices drive changes in metabolic, hormonal, and systemic inflammatory pathways that lead us to having a polarized immune system towards excessive immune-based inflammation. Another large area of research which is covered in this week's journal podcast is on omega-3 fatty acids. These fats enter our bodies from cold water, fish, grass-fed animal meats, and to a lesser extent, some, needs, some seeds and nuts. 
it turns out that primarily uh, based on animal models and some human trials, these fats are heavily involved in the production of specialized pro-resolving lipid mediators known as resolvents, protectants, and maricins. These SPMs drive the resolution of neuroimmune inflammation leading to a more rapid recovery. The microbiome also has some effect in TBI. It's revolving rapidly, but there is some evidence that there's a crosstalk between the brain and the gut post-injury. There was a research paper published in November of 2017, edition of the journal Brain Behavior and Immunity, that found that there was a staggering amount of post-head injury issues related to the microbiome. The results showed that post-head injury, people developed classic leaky gut, allowing intestinal bacterial pathogens to travel outside of the gut to other sites in the body. Subsequently, developed significant systemic bacterial infections, which can kill or at least hurt the injured person beyond just the traumatic brain injury issues. Statistically, post-traumatic brain injury-related human individual subjects are much more likely to die from bacterial infections than non-traumatic brain injury patients in the hospital. In the animal model, in the study, they noticed that mice underwent a traumatic brain injury, which caused a period of intestinal leakage that lasted for greater than 30 days. It appears that the same is happening in humans. The second part of the study proved that cross-bidirectional talk of the brain and the gut bacteria was significantly understood. They infected the mice with a pathogen, Citrobacter rodentium, known to cause infection in the gut. The animals that had traumatic brain injury had significantly greater brain inflammation if they were co-infected with this pathogen. The infected animals lost more memory cells and suffered significantly more. Why is this significant? If you have a dysfunctional gut microbiome prior to suffering a traumatic brain injury, you are likely to have a significantly worse outcome. We know by testing that we are doing in our clinic that most of the children that we analyze their microbiomes, we find that they have a more dysfunctional bacterial microbiome makeup beyond the normal balance point. So this is yet another piece of evidence in a long line of data teaching us that we are tremendously negatively affected by our diets, lifestyle stressors that can cause our microbiome to become dysfunctional and then in animal models and now potentially human models, we are seeing that these crosstalk events between the microbiome and the brain worsen TBI outcomes. As with all things in nature, prevention of these things would be ideal. One is easier to protect against than the other. The easy one is to have a robust and healthy fiber-based diet for years prior to the event to prevent this inflammatory worsening. The hard part, is choosing to do that. Preventing TBI itself is also important, but harder to do if you are an athlete. So what do we do based on what we know today? If you go to Frontiers in Nutrition, Marquez, M-A-R-Q-U-E-S, there's a nice graphic that delineates the lifestyle risk paradigm based on traumatic brain injury. But suffice it to say, first thing I would do Number one is to increase your fiber intake. Fiber will protect you by providing the food for the gut microbes to consume and proliferate in a healthy pattern. Eat lots of vegetables, nuts, seeds, and fruits for the rest of your life. Two, 
Gluten is known to worsen intestinal permeability and blood-brain permeability in certain individuals. See the research of Alessio Fasano. Avoid gluten post-injury for a month. If you have any symptoms of celiac disease or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, avoid gluten in general. And you can listen to Dr. Alessio Fasano in one of the podcasts that I did this year with him. It was podcast number 19. Number three, avoid all pro-inflammatory foods, including vegetable oils, fried food, processed white foods, including bread, pasta, crackers, chips, cookies, etc., and high volume. Avoid corn-fed meats, farmed fish, diet, and sugar-based beverages. Number four, omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil can protect against some of the inflammatory damage by balancing the inflammatory fatty acid system. Take provider-recommended fish oil or eat small oily fish every week. Five, control the variables that are controllable. Wear a helmet or specialized protective gear to lessen the impact in sports. Wear seat belts and use car seats appropriately to protect and prevent car wreck-induced head injuries. Offensive and defensive linemen in football and rugby players in general are at particular risk based on their repetitive ram-like hits. I am in favor of contact-minimized practice, especially for these linemen. Check out the Virginia, Virginia Tech Helmet Information Quality website at the link provided in the newsletter. Six, take high-quality refrigerated multi-species probiotics with the advice of your provider. Seven, get seven to nine hours of sleep nightly based on your chronotype. Eight, minimize mental stress by prayer, meditation, and rest. Nine, exercise 30 minutes every day. Ten, consider anti-inflammatory herbs like curcumin and ginger as an adjunctive therapy via supplement or in consumed foods. Honestly, the same things that help protect against a negative COVID outcome are mostly at play here. See the COVID newsletter for more thoughts and to dive deeper here. Okay, let's move on to section two. Starchy vegetables are better than we thought, according to a new study from Frontiers in Nutrition. This study came to the conclusion, as expected, most vegetables, starchy or not, legumes, and fruit were assigned to higher quality carbohydrates by the four CQI models and by CFQS4. These are research tools to look at quality indexes for vegetables. Starchy vegetables tend to be high in both potassium and fiber and low in free sugars and sodium. Based on the present results, it may be time to place starchy vegetables among the higher quality foods. Frankly, this is not a surprise to me when the food is analyzed in its whole non-processed form. Starchy vegetables like potatoes, yucca, squash, turnips, and corn are fine when consumed as part of a whole, meal, whole food meal plan and in limited volumes. If you eat a bowl of mashed potatoes or french fries without any protein or fat, it will spike your insulin, and over time, that's not great. The form of starch combined with the accompanying foods makes a massive difference in the glycemic response, your insulin response, and your immune hormonal activation and reaction. For example, instant and mashed potatoes turn to sugar in the system much faster than a boiled or baked potato when consumed alone. French fries have a lower glycemic response because of the fat that is in the fry after cooking. Waxy potatoes are less glucose spiking than flour russet potatoes, and on and on. There's a lot of nuance here. Understanding the principles of nutrition are very important. 
wearing a continuous glucose monitor for two weeks while you eat these certain foods will give you an idea of response too. So there's a metric way to look at it. For me, the answer is simple. One, eat starchy vegetables as close to their whole form as possible. Two, do it in moderation. Three, with other foods like lean protein and good fats like avocados or olive oil. So the article was Drevnovsky, D-R-E-W-N-A, excuse me, N-O-W-S-K-I, Frontiers in Nutrition. Section three. Summer is starting and competitive athletics for the summertime may be gearing up. Kids of all ages are playing sports during the heat of the day all over the country. This time of year poses a major risk for overheating for children and adolescents engaged in aggressive aerobic outdoor exercise. In our clinic, we have had admissions to the hospital for heat exhaustion and muscle breakdown known as rhabdomyolysis over the past decade. For example, a young man was practicing on the football field and overheated due to a combination of underhydration and excessive ambient temperature. Symptoms included excessive sweating, rapid pulse, muscle pain, nausea, vomiting, and dizziness. This is a very serious condition that can progress to heat stroke where the core temperature surpasses 105 degrees Fahrenheit, consciousness changes, and the skin becomes hot, red, and dry. If untreated, death will follow. We all need to talk to our children about these risks. What to do? Number one, hydrate adequately before, during, and after practice. If you are thirsty, you are already behind. Water is all that is necessary to replete dehydration. Wear light and loose clothing, preferably the new wicking tech clothing. Three, apply sunscreen, SPF 30 before practice. Four, bring a wet, cold rag to put on your head and neck in between drills. Five, rest in the shade when possible in between drills. Stay cool. All right, folks, that is the end of this audiocast newsletter for volume 12, letter number 28 for the week of June 27th, 2022. As always, hug those kids. Have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.